Our scripture reading for today comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. So this message is titled, Waiting for the Lord's Servant. And uh, I, wrote it, I wrote that title in such a way as to convey two truths. Here we're going to see how Mary, Joseph, Simeon, really indeed all of Israel, they were the ones who were waiting for Yahweh's servant, but also I want to look at it in as considered uh, by the servant himself, that is, how Jesus Christ himself is waiting. And, and in his ministry, in his life, up until the time where he was able to do the final thing which his father had sent him to accomplish, he was waiting. So not only waiting upon or waiting for the, the servant to be revealed, but waiting as considered by the servant or waiting for Jesus. That is what it was like for Jesus himself to wait and how that necessarily ties to how we relate to waiting on the promises of God to be fulfilled. I believe it, it's, it's, a, it's a vital aspect of Christian discipline, especially as young people. Our church has a number of young people who are what you might call upwardly mobile. You're ascendant, you're getting better jobs, you're uh, having children, you're getting married, you're doing all these things that are uh, up and coming. And sometimes while we are in that process, we are impatient and we become despairingly so impatient. And so we're tempted to either despair or to rush on ahead. But I believe that God wishes to, by this passage, show us one of the ways in which we should wait patiently. And that waiting is actually a very important aspect of the gospel. The gospel is not just 
I get a ticket to go to heaven, and then I'm justified with God, and I live with him in, in eternity with the saints, and everything's golden. The gospel also affects how I live right now, how my heart stays steadfast while waiting for the promises of God to be revealed both in my life and through my life. And so here we see how Jesus Christ is our exemplar. He's our model for how we wait. And I believe that this is such an important aspect that uh, it is probably the, the capstone to this time of Christmas. It would be actually probably more fitting if this was discussed in the time of Advent, but I think they're intentionally linked. And um, they're, they're intentionally linked in a way that I think is very beneficial for us. So first, we're going to look at Mary and Joseph's obedience, how they did things. We looked at this last week, how the family of Jesus actually did things that were necessary for Jesus to be in the covenant and in the law. And I think that's a, an interesting paradigm to explore, uh, and it, it provides a lot of implications, or it sets up a lot of implications for how we address uh, children and family life, which we won't have time to fully discover, but uh, those will be seeds which will grow on their own. Uh, I want to look at the atonement and the consolation that Israel was requiring. Here we see Simeon, who himself is looking for the consolation of Israel, even though he himself is a righteous person. And so as soon as, in our story today, as soon as they come before God, there's this reminder that they need consoled. There's something wrong that needs to be put right. And we see Simeon gets a little glimpse of it, although he himself is not the uh, righteous leader of Israel. He's looking for salvation. I want to discuss the problem of waiting as it applies to us in great detail. Normally, I spend very little time on application because I'm intending to convey uh, the biblical truth, how the covenant uh, is established, the plan of redemptive history. But unless it becomes an applied doctrine, then you are not actually achieving maturity. You're gaining head knowledge, but unless that head knowledge becomes heart motivation, and really by worship, by, by the action of the Holy Spirit, a transformation of your heart such that you're actually changed as you're learning, then, then that's not gospel learning. It's just information. So my goal here today is to show you how you wait in the wrong way, and then how you can wait in the right way by showing you how Jesus Christ was patiently obedient for you. We're going to look at his faithful obedience and then look at how that transfers to our faithful obedience. Uh, it is our conviction as uh, Protestant Christians or little r Reformed Christians, uh, that, that is, we're not Reformed enough to be accepted with a capital R Reform, and we're, not, and we're just Reformed enough that we can't call ourselves anything less than that. The Arminians won't take us. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, in this, we're in this place uh, as believers who understand the grace of God, understand the doctrines of grace, and we, we believe, it's our conviction that every progress in the Christian life, every failure to make progress is at a fundamental level to not believe the gospel and to not press the gospel out in its application to all the areas of our life. That is, I intellectually know that Jesus is my Savior, but I'm still fearful or I believe that God loves me, but I still am depressed and dejected and isolated. I believe that God has set me in a family in the church, but I still live as a rule unto myself. 
These are, these are breakdowns of our understanding. There's a disconnect. And in order to solidify that or in order to repair that brokenness, we must be impacted with Jesus Christ. It is not enough to have a moralistic uh, invocation or a, or a command to do this, read your Bible more, pray more. Those things can be helpful, but at, those are only beating on the will for a time. They are not a transformation of the heart, which can only be done by the Holy Spirit, by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so here I want to examine what is it like for a Christian to wait on the Lord? And this is such an abstract idea. This is such an abstract doctrine, waiting on the Lord, that we we use this phrase a lot, but we don't actually consider how we do it well. How do we wait on the Lord rightly? And so I believe that Simeon, Mary, Joseph, they show us, in a very small way, good examples of waiting, but they're not the perfect example. But we will see the perfect example today. So at the very beginning of the reading, we see this pattern of promise and waiting. Jesus Christ is born, and then there are eight more days until he's circumcised. After he's born, there are 44 days before they're purified and they go up to the temple. There's a coming and then a waiting and a delivery. This is something that my wife and I are learning in waiting for little Susan. We have seen pictures of her through the magic of, or technology of, uh, ultrasound. And yet, uh, every time I tell Susan that, you know, we're excited to see her come soon, my wife then reminds me, come at the appropriate time. So even in Jesus Christ's birth, so the, the angel announces the name Jesus to Mary, and then she waits for nine months. He's born, and then he waits until he comes and is presented to God in the temple. They wait again before they can be uh, re- received back into fellowship with God through the cleansing after the impurity of the birth. And so there's this pattern of promise and waiting. And that actually is the pattern of the entire narrative. Our entire reading is focused on waiting after receiving a promise. And so through their faithful uh, patience, uh, we see Moses, or Moses, Joseph and, uh, and Mary do something that is for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Jesus Christ would not have been fully devoted to the Lord unless they did this. They had to complete this aspect of the law. And this is the beginning, as we saw last week, of Jesus' obedience, which was done on our behalf. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy. And the way in Israel that a child is called holy is they are brought to the temple and a sacrifice is made to redeem the firstborn, which was a reminder of God's judgments in delivering them from Egypt. The last plague, the culmination of the 10 plagues, which were all representative of God destroying their idolatries and their false economy, which was used in a harsh and oppressive way. He finally kills the firstborn of all the families in Egypt. And so God sets up a a reminder in the law, in the way that Israel was to live, for them to continually remember his salvation how he perfectly judged evil and delivered them to righteousness. And each child was to be a living testimony, holy to the Lord. 
This is who Jesus Christ is supposed to be. Of course, all these children throughout all the years of Israel's life were only pointing forward to one who really is holy unto the Lord and devoted. And Jesus here then receives that obedience and lives in it as we looked last week. Jesus is devoted to the Lord's service completely. His whole life is to be given to God. We saw this last week with comparing him to Samuel and the Nazarite vow, how they were dedicated or devoted to a particular service. We see this exact same thing happen with Simeon. But every time a human being comes before God in the scriptures, in the, in the covenant that he established with his people, there is a reminder of sin and a reminder of impurity, not because God wishes to smug it in their face, as it were, or to uh, to make them uh, wish to not appear before him, but rather as a reminder, a teacher, that there is a real atonement that needs to be made. Through the law, God reminds his people of this. Their sins have made a separation between him and them. And so uh, Mary here offers what's considered to be the offering for a poor person. In Leviticus 12, the cleansing and atonement that's made is uh, called a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Um, this is, I think, kind of referred to in the 12 days of Christmas. If you remember that old song on the 12 days of Christmas, they give how many turtle doves? Two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. And so this is a re- an intentional uh, remembrance of what took place in the Christmas story. That was an aspect of Christian culture. Now, I don't really like singing that song. It takes way too long. But the point is, there, there's a pointer to this story. What, it was necessary that Jesus Christ would come before Yahweh in righteousness, fulfilling the law of God, identifying that there needs to be an atonement for sin. And so, as soon as, at the beginning of our reading, there's uh, nothing wrong, apparently. There's Mary and Joseph take Jesus up, he's circumcised, they go up for their purification. But immediately in the story, right, right away, there's a reminder of problems. So we have a good beginning, and now there's a little bit of a dilemma that enters into the reading. So as we see this story, Simon is a righteous man who's devoted to God. But even as righteous as Simeon is, uh, not Simon, sorry, Simeon, uh, he's not the answer for all the problems of Israel. Look at this closely. It says, there, there's a man named Simeon who was righteous and devout, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. There was something that Simeon is waiting for. Simeon is not the answer himself. Simeon is needing an answer. As righteous and devout as Simeon is, living in the temple, worshiping Yahweh, doing his bidding, encouraging those who are looking for the consolation of Israel to put their hope in God and to not lose faith, even as righteous as Simeon is, he understands that he is not the salvation of Israel. This is an important thing to remember as people who are in the business of discipling or ministering the gospel, you are not Jesus Christ. You need to be a pointer to Jesus Christ. You need to, as I heard it this week, be a clear and translucent glass which magnifies the light of Jesus Christ and points to the light of Jesus Christ. That He's waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I think this is just a wonderful way of Luke saying that there is a continuity between the covenants. We, we mostly think of the Holy Spirit coming on people as a benefit purchased by the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the ascension, and that is true. The Holy Spirit did not come in a, in a great way until after 
the day of Pentecost, but there were little pointers all along to the way that God wished for his people to live uh, in righteousness before him, and that was to live with the Holy Spirit. And so Simeon begins to perceive by the Holy Spirit what's going on in this uh, in this account. And at this point, I think it's helpful for you to examine how many times you've heard this story. Uh, God gives this promise to Simeon that he's going to see the Messiah, right? Simeon receives this promise, and then he has the Holy Spirit and is able to, by the Spirit, understand what's going on. But I don't think there was any indication that Simeon understood that the Messiah would come as a child. There's nothing to imply that Simeon was going to the temple looking for a baby. But rather, I believe that in, you know, in my meditation this week on this passage, I thought it's, it's probably more like what happened to John the Baptist when John the Baptist is ministering and washing uh, these, these people of the entire nation indeed, transferring them into the new covenant and uh, washing them and making them new. They're, they're, repent, uh, they're baptized for repentance. And at one point when John the Baptist is preaching, We've, we've actually talked about this passage a number of times. He has this moment where he's at the waters and he beholds Jesus Christ. And he has this moment that I think is probably the most blessed moment in that, that, was ha- that happened to a man uh, not G- who wasn't Jesus, uh, where he beholds Jesus Christ from a distance. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has this moment where this revelation comes to him, and he's able to see. His eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. And he sees, he, he testifies, I did not know in what form he would come, but now I see him clearly. And so I think this is what's happening to Simeon. He didn't go to the temple knowing that there would be the Christ child. He's just in the temple faithfully doing his duties as a worshiper of Yahweh. He's just going about his life patiently waiting. And all of a sudden, on this particular day, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus come into the temple to dedicate the child to the Lord. And so this is a a thing that happens that catches Simeon off guard, but he's caught or he's revealed to be faithfully waiting, patiently waiting, doing the things which God has told him to do. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, but it's not revealed to him that he would see a baby, but rather that he would just see the Messiah. And so upon seeing this child, Simeon is filled with praise. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. As soon as Jesus is seen by Simeon, Simeon explodes with a song. Whenever you see uh, in your Bible a indentation and then uh, a few words either capitalized, that's usually a, a quotation, or offset from the left side of the text. That's indicated, the writer's indicating that this is a poem or a song which this person either said or wrote. And uh, here Simeon is actually saying something about the uh, ministry and salvation of Jesus Christ. He's testifying to the universality of Jesus' coming. It's not just for the consolation of Israel. Now, Simeon understands that it is for all the nations, indeed a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So for Simeon, the scope of God's salvation, though done in a particular time and place, in a particular person named Jesus Christ, has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. 
And indeed, Simeon, by faith, is understanding that God is going to use messengers to touch all peoples. It's not done in all peoples in some sort of existential way, but rather it is both and. It's cosmically important, it is universally important, but also it will have a fleshing out on the ground. People will go to the Gentiles. They will take light. And indeed, Jesus Christ, after testifying that he himself was the light, early on in his ministry, not even as a part of his uh, departing teachings, but rather just the beginning of his teachings, he declares to his disciples, you are the lights to the world. You are a light to the world, a city that is set on a hill, a beacon, a lighthouse in the midst of a dark age. And so here, Simeon, by faith, is seeing that this is going to touch everyone. It's going to go everywhere. Indeed, through this child, God is going to send messengers to all the nations. And the child, then, is not only the answer to the people's problems, but also the problems of the whole world. It's not just one uh, one gift of a Messiah to a nation, but it's a gift of a Messiah to the nations. Ultimately, the coming forth of Christ, which is God's faithful servant, reveals to our hearts how we wait impatiently. We talked earlier about Mary waiting, Joseph waiting, Simeon waiting. We, don't, uh, we didn't read this part, but immediately after this, we see another uh, character, Anna, who is also faithfully waiting. And these people who are waiting patiently are echoes to Jesus Christ's waiting, as we're going to look at. But right now, I want to look at the problem of waiting that we have. We've seen righteous examples, but I want you to reflect upon your own life. God requires us to live before him in righteousness. Amen? God says to us as Christians that we are to excel in maturity, to be impacted by his word, to be filled with his spirit. We're supposed to be about the business of living as Christians well. God doesn't want us to just live as Christians in a mediocre way. And so many of us who say yes and amen to that because of the grace of God acting by the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, God has given us dreams, visions, purposes, and he is bringing us along to open our eyes to see how we are to live before him. But it's often the case that at this moment, there begins to be a little bit of frustration. We see a great vision for our life, and then we see how we're immediately unable to do it. I think it's fitting that this was the reading to be uh, announced immediately after January 1st. This is the time as uh, people in the West have begun to adopt this pattern of uh, New Year's resolutions. And I think it's funny because uh, resolution now can mean a few things. It can mean the size of your screen on a computer, but it also, it really means your resolve. That is, things which you've decided to do, which you have come to a conclusion as being important and therefore necessary to set right in your life. These are my New Year's resolutions. I was joking with a a friend uh, earlier on Friday night, earlier this week, this, this last Friday, about how Uh, very often I don't complete my New Year's resolutions. And so uh, what I actually need to do is not to resolve to do things that I want to do, but actually I need to resolve to do things that I never should do. So a little reverse psychology on my New Year's resolution. I'm going to watch more TV this year. And just by reverse psychology, it won't happen. Um, now, Now that's what we call cynicism, and it's not healthy. 
but you're familiar with this pattern. Perhaps you have resolved to do things in life, and then you see that uh, come February 1, you've not only forgotten what you resolved, but you're not doing it. Um, it hasn't become habit, and indeed, you've totally missed the goal. And at this point, you know, this is just an aspect of life. It's just a, an aspect of life that I believe God wishes for us to conquer through the gospel. I believe that we should. So we know that we're called to live before him, but there's this deep problem in us that we do not like waiting. We see the great high calling of God, and yet we are unable to do it. And so we have one of two uh, responses to it. Ultimately, this is unbelief. When we see the great promises of God and then become impatient or become frustrated while waiting, it's a form of unbelief, and it's a form that I think takes two, uh, two manifestations or two ways that it's revealed. One of them is an active way, and one of them is an inactive way. And though this is not concretely true, I believe most of the time men respond in the active form of unbelief, which we're going to examine in a moment, and women tend to respond in the inactive way. Now, again, that's not uh, universally true. That's just what I've seen as a tendency to how we respond in unbelief while waiting. And the first way, the active way, is that we attempt to save ourselves. We see the great high calling of God. We see that we're waiting for it to be revealed. We know that God has a great plan for us, but we lack maturity, and so we rush on ahead. We take things and we seize things that we're not ready to handle. Uh, like a bulldozer, we run over the emotions of others who get in our way. We either use them or push them aside or run them down through the process of trying to run forward to our goals. Ultimately, this is the fruit of impatience, and it only breeds chaos and brokenness. You, you probably have seen a time in your life where this has been true of you. I know that it's true of my, myself, where I have been unready, not yet ready for something that I know God has called me to do or know God has, has promised will happen. And so I attempt to make it happen on my own. I rush on ahead and I am actively impatient and unbelieving. The other way is sometimes we turn our despair into hopelessness. This is the, what I call the inactive way of responding in unbelief. That is, we become so focused on our negative circumstances or our negative context right now, and we know that God has these great plans, but we begin to uh, operate in unbelief concerning them coming true one day. And so we turn inward. We uh, see this goodness that God has, and it's an abstract idea. But inwardly, we begin to feed on disappointment and discouragement. We countenance uh, disappointment. We actually befriend it in a way uh, that is unhealthy. And so we become isolated and we turn inward, and eventually it becomes depression. We see God has this great plan. We, it's too far away for us, and we, just, we, we begin to believe that it won't really come true. And so rather than trying to work with God in bringing that about, we just move to inaction completely. And so there's these two forms, and I believe that these two sets of problems or these two manifestations really have one common cause, that is the unbelief of impatient waiting, and therefore, because they have a common cause, there is a common solution, and that is, like Simeon, to see the salvation of God in Jesus Christ, most importantly, to see how he waited well. By Simeon's good example and by his words, he tells about Christ's obedience 
and how Christ will be this one who is faithfully waiting. Verse, 20, uh, verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what is, was said about him. This is, I think, probably my favorite part of Luke 2, how Simeon gives this prophecy concerning what's going to happen to this child. That, of course, is, this prophecy is coming by the Holy Spirit, and he utters it, he says it to Mary. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Isn't that what John the Baptist also testified? That before the the path of the Lord, it needs to be made straight. Every mountain shall be humbled and every valley shall be exalted. This is exactly what Jesus Christ is coming to do. But he is a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simon is, uh, sorry, Simeon. Simeon is is testifying, he's prophesying concerning the death of Jesus Christ. He's, con- he's prophesying con- concerning the prophecy or the oracle which was given long ago that he would be the one to crush the serpent's head. And I think that what's an interesting aspect here is that Mary is included in this sorrow, that this opposition which comes against Jesus is going to touch her as well. And so God's will for Christ. God's will for Christ's life was that he was to be opposed, opposed to the point of death. Now think about how you've been received in life. Many of us have families who love us or friends who love us. Jesus Christ is opposed, and he's opposed by the nation, and he's opposed by the governments, and he's opposed to death. And Jesus Christ is faithful to Yahweh throughout all of his life, as we looked at in great detail last week, and he's faithful while he's waiting for this. You and I suffer under the weight of waiting for good promises, right? But Jesus Christ suffers and patiently waits with the promise of a terrible thing happening, dying in death and agony, uh, dying in a, in a tragic death. We, we become impatient while we're waiting to receive good things. He was faithful while waiting for the worst thing that could happen. And Peter quotes Isaiah in Isaiah 53, identifying Jesus Christ as Yahweh's suffering servant, the one who atones for the the sins of the people. And if you've never taken some time through Isaiah 53, it's a very important and wonderful passage, which speaks of this one who will serve Yahweh, who will be Yahweh's servant doing Yahweh's will in the nation. And, And Peter actually quotes uh, Isaiah at the end of this passage, 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24, he committed no sin. That's amazing. <laughs> Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And here's the quotation, by his wounds, you have been healed. Peter is giving a testimony. He's giving the the apostolic witness of what took place with Jesus Christ. That is, he was one who waited patiently. He did not only just commit no sin in general, but rather he waited in a way that was worthy of God. It's only in seeing how Christ perfectly obeys his Father that we can ever be delivered from our impatience and hopelessness. It is actually, I believe, causally linked. That is, our inability to wait patiently on the things of God is directly tied to a failure at a heart level to behold Jesus Christ's patience 
as he waits. Consider exactly how Simeon sees Jesus. In verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now, God had given Simeon a promise that he would depart and see the salvation of God. Before he departed, he would see the Messiah. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon is saying that upon the sight of this salvation, he is able now to depart in peace. This is a a manifestly beautiful aspect. I want to turn just for a second to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 53, really quickly to examine some of the ways in which there is a switch or a context change between the one who lived in peace and us who did not have any peace. Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This is talking about sight, our ability to perceive who this one is, Yahweh's servant. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This is what Peter is quoting here, this last line. He's intending to invoke the whole meaning, identifying Jesus Christ as the servant who faithfully lives for Yahweh, doing Yahweh's will, and is then uh, patiently offered up to death. He's not waiting for a good thing, but rather for a terrible thing. We who wait for good promises are often unable to wait in this manner. And I believe it's because we cannot see Jesus Christ as Yahweh's faithful servant. This passage in Isaiah over and over again talks about the consideration and the sight that we have concerning the Lord's servant, that we're unable to see him. We esteem him the wrong way. We consider him the wrong way. And Jesus Christ is Yahweh's servant on our behalf and is attempting to show us how to wait. This is what 1 Peter talks about, that Christ suffered as an example for you to know how to wait. And so look at how Simeon sees this. The reason Simeon can die in peace is because he sees God's salvation. God had made a promise, Simeon, you will see the salvation of God before you depart. And then Simeon says, I can now depart because I have seen your salvation. And in seeing the Christ child, Simeon by the Spirit beholds the fulfillment of God's promises. Seeing, seeing Christ, Simeon's fears are relieved. They're, they're set at ease. I'm reminded of the great uh, Christmas hymn, which we didn't sing this year. Maybe we'll sing it next year. O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's one of my favorites uh, because on YouTube, you can find a v- version that's sung in German, and I think it's really pretty. Silent Night It was also another originally German song. And uh, I love the German because every once in a while, you can still get a glimpse or a word that's a 
close cognate and you can hear it. But my favorite part of a little town of Bethlehem is not the wonderful scenery that they lay out, but rather what was taking place in the coming of Christ. At the end of the first verse in a little town of Bethlehem, it says that the hopes and fears of all the years, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This is what is supposed to be shown at Christmas is that Jesus Christ is the alleviation of fears and the removal of those things which are uh, worrisome in our hearts, which are fear in our hearts, but also he's the fulfillment of those things which we deepestly hope for. He's the greatest fulfillment and also the greatest relief for both our hopes and our fears. That's why I think that song is so powerful is it, it conveys something that's going on that's not just a detail about where he lived or what, uh, what type of place he was born in, but rather what was going on through the coming of Christ. And isn't this God's pattern that whenever he fulfills a promise that he's made in the past, he expands that promise and he makes it larger. Simeon sees the salvation of God, but in that revelation of the fulfillment of the promise by the Spirit, his eyes are opened to see an ever larger promise that Jesus Christ will be a sign that is to be opposed. And this is exactly what takes place. Ultimately, the reason that Simeon can die in peace is because he sees Christ who will die in agony and torment for him. This is the great exchange that's made at the cross that Simeon is able to behold Jesus Christ and he dies in peace because Christ will die suffering under the wrath of God for his sins, making that atonement which was alluded to earlier in this passage. We are called exactly to do the same, to look on Christ and to be consoled. This is the pattern for us as believers. We're to behold by faith and then have that faithful beholding transfer to a heart reality, which explodes in praise to God like Simeon does here today. So we're going to close. And uh, at this point, if anyone who is uh, ministering with the kids downstairs would like to bring them back up, we're going to uh, pray and then take communion. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask God that you would give us a great, wonderful beholding by the faith of Jesus Christ, that we would be able to see you in a magnificent way, in a way that is conducive to faith rising in our hearts, that we would believe your great promises and that we would see your salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would deliver us from those fears and anxieties that we know to be at work in our hearts, that you would end the, the two great uh, rebellions, whether it's depression or, uh, or active disobedience by trying to bring about our own salvation or our own life. God, we pray that you would give us a gospel-filled obedience in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.